please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Why am I preaching on Matthew chapter 19? Because we finished Matthew chapter 18 <laughs> last week. As I mentioned earlier, we'll probably be in the, the topic of marriage and divorce for a few weeks. A lot of, a lot of pastors take the whole section, but I, I just, there's just too much. And um, so I've br broken it down into smaller chunks. So we'll look at, God willing, Matthew 19, 1 through 6 this morning. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to test him, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You that You care for the largest and smallest details of our lives, that the hairs of our head are numbered, that You care about us enough to, to speak to us about marriage in a way that makes some people feel uncomfortable. Lord, even your disciples, after you taught them about marriage, said, if this is the case, who, who should ever get married? And so, Lord, we pray we would hear from our King, our Commander today, and we would submit to all that He says. Lord, that we would not only submit to all that He says, but we would love what He says. That we would rejoice in what He says. And Father, we pray that by Your Spirit You would give us the power to obey all that He has commanded us. And Father, we pray that we would truly know and feel the love of God uh, for us in what He commands, both in what it pictures and, and both what He calls us to. And so Father, again we pray, help us to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, for we are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I sometimes quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I find that confession a very helpful confession as I preach on certain topics to make sure I've covered every area because it's, it's very thorough. And uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith has... Uh, uh, gives reasons for marriage, why God ordained marriage. Um, marriage being uh, between one man and one woman who make a covenant together, a promise to live together in good and bad, sickness, health, richer for poor, 
They make a covenant promise before God and before witnesses. And then they consummate that covenant in sexual relations. That's what marriage is. I want to define marriage uh, at the beginning there. Marriage is, is a covenant promise between one man and one woman. Covenant promise, sexual intercourse. Those two points make marriage. And the Westminster Confession says marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue with children, and of the church with an holy seed. And so we raise those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord that they might come to believe in Christ and follow Him, and for preventing of uncleanness. So, so those are our purposes for marriage. But one of the reasons I love the Westminster Confession is they usually get everything you need to think about and more according to God's Word. But, to my surprise this week, they left the main thing out. They actually left the main thing out of the definition of, or the reason for marriage uh, because the main thing about marriage is not that we help each other, though that's important. It's not that we can have children, though that's important. That we have godly children, though that's important. It's, it's not mainly for, for purity, though that's important. Those are all very important purposes of marriage. But they left the main thing out, which Jesus focuses on in our text today. John Piper nails it when he writes, the deepest and highest meaning of marriage, not sexual intimacy, as good as that is, not friendship, as good as that is, not mutual helpfulness, as good as that is, not childbearing and childrearing, as good as that is. So he basically covers what the Westminster Confession says. But then he says, the main thing is the flesh and blood display in the world of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church. That's the main thing about marriage. To display the covenant-keeping, never-dying, never-ending, never-changing love that Jesus has for His church. And that's the heart of what Jesus is talking about in our passage today, about what marriage is. Or in the words of another well-known theologian, Rocky Balboa, Adrian, you ain't never getting rid of me. That, that is the heart of marriage. You ain't never getting rid of me. We are in this to the end, period. N nothing afterwards to show Christ's love for His church. That commitment. John Piper said elsewhere, the main thing about marriage is not staying in love. It's keeping your promise. No matter what. Because that displays the love of Christ for His church that He will never leave her nor forsake her. And so you who are married, what an amazing ministry you have to display by staying married. Showing forth that covenant-keeping love that Christ has for His church. No matter what. That's the main thing about marriage. That's what Jesus focuses on in our text today. 
And I want to be careful as I speak about this because I realize there are people uh, in, our, in our midst who probably everyone in, in some shape or form ha- have been uh, touched by the, the pain and suffering and the heartbreak of divorce. Either in your own personal life or family members, friends, We've all been touched by this pain. And we want to show grace and love and mercy and compassion. Again, Piper writes, there are two ways to be compassionate and caring in relation to divorce. Not at all meaning that you choose between them, but that you must pursue both. One is to come alongside divorced persons while they grieve and wherever necessary, repent, and to stay by them through the painful transitions and to fold them into our lives and to help them find a way to enjoy the forgiveness and the strength for new kinds of obedience that Christ has already obtained for them when He died and rose again. That's one way to love. And I pray we will all pursue it. The other way to respond with care and compassion is to articulate a hatred for divorce. And why is it, why, and show why it is against God's will and do all we can to biblically keep it from happening. And so we want to do both of those today. We want to show grace and mercy and compassion, call people to repent and know that they're forgiven in Christ. And also we, we want to hold up God's standard and say this is God's best, this is God's will to be married, stay married, to flee divorce and to show the covenant-keeping love of Christ for His church who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the gospel. That Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us because He died for us and rose for us. He came for His bride to save her and He will never let her go. And marriage is to picture that. Human marriage is to picture that. And so a thesis statement for today's sermon, we see Jesus confront false teachers, the Pharisees, by pointing them back to God's Word in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which shows that divorce is against God's righteous command because marriage is God permanently joining one man and one woman in one flesh union that should never be separated. Jesus confronts the false teachers, the Pharisees, by pointing them back to God's Word in Genesis, which shows that divorce is against God's righteous command because marriage is God's permanently joining one man and one woman in a one-flesh union that should never be separated. Point number one, Jesus keeps loving and keeps healing. Look at verses 1 through 2 in Matthew 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Jesus finished the sayings in chapter 18 that we've been studying the past few weeks. He taught us how to relate to one another in the church, how to love one another in the church, how to deal with offenses and sins and temptations in the church, how to forgive one another in the church, and isn't marriage, a most fitting relationship to apply Jesus' teachings on forgiveness. 
Anytime you get in a close relationship with somebody, you're going to sin against them. So it's best that you learn how to forgive biblically. And so we come to marriage in chapter 19. We notice in these first two verses that Jesus continued to heal. Jesus was healing sickness and diseases. Jesus was preaching and teaching to large crowds, and He healed the sick. And again, this points us to the reality of who Jesus is. He's the one who has come to make all wrongs right. He's the last Adam who is cleaning up the mess that the first Adam made. He's come to destroy the works of the devil and abolish sickness. And we see in this that Jesus is the one who truly loves and cares. Jesus is the one who truly loves and cares. And you need to get this because sometimes when when we talk about what Jesus commands about marriage and divorce, people don't feel anything but loved. (laughs) If He loved me, He'd just let me divorce. If if, if He loved me, he He would not be so strict. He doesn't want me to be unhappy for the rest of my life. If He really loved me, He would just let me go my own way so that I could be happy. I've heard kinds of excuses like this in the church when when married people come and and want want to divorce. If if I don't do this, I'm going to die from high blood pressure. I mean, they, 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 they've so rationalized that they need to do this that they come up with like death-like excuses for why they need to get divorced. And so when Jesus gives the standard, that can sound not loving, not, not compassionate. If, if He really loved, He would let me do this. But beloved, Jesus starts by here by showing He really loves us. It's not the Pharisees that love us. <laughs> It's not the Pharisees who have this relaxed, low view of marriage. Oh yeah, whatever. She burnt her toast, divorce her. No, they, they love us. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. He's in there with the people. He, 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 he's beside the people, with the people, eating with the people, touching lepers, casting out demons. He's doing ministry with them. He's the one who loves them, and He's the one who's going to tell them hard things because He loves them. Not the Pharisees. Legan Duncan comments, and what we learn from these first couple of verses is that Jesus is the one who truly cares about people. And that is so important in light of the difficult things that he's going to say in a few moments. Jesus is going to have a view of marriage, divorce and remarriage, which is, if we can use the language, more narrow than the view of the Pharisees, all of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, whichever side they are on, are going to have a more relaxed view of the grounds for divorce. And so Jesus is going to say some things that are unpopular. But it is very important before we see what Jesus says to see that Jesus is the one who truly cares about people. It is not the Pharisees with their more relaxed views of divorce that care about your life and your soul. No, beloved, Jesus cares about your soul. Jesus cares about your life. And that means sometimes He going to step on your toes. He's going to tell you things you don't want to hear. He's going to tell you things sometimes, quite frankly, they are going to offend you. Because He loves you. And true love and care will get in your personal business about marriage. True love and care will get into your personal business about marriage. Should the church be so involved concerning my marriage? I mean, this is sort of a personal thing. This is between me and my husband and God. What, 
What are you, you church? Where, uh, uh, is this really your place? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Please know if you become a member here, we, this is our business because Jesus is our business and his words are our business and we love you. We want to love you like Jesus loves you. <laughs> and this is so important. Marriage is so important. We see the, the, the horrific effects of, of lack of marriage in our society. And, and I want to start this by saying that, that many of us have come from broken homes, myself included. Some of us don't have a father. It's Father's Day. Some of us don't have a father in the home. And we want to pray for those single mothers and, and be fathers to them, men in the church, be fathers to them and love them and help them. Some of you may not have a mother in the home. And, and so single fathers are raising the children by themselves. We live in a broken world. And there's redemption, there's salvation, there's, there, there's help that the church is to give and be your family. But when we talk about the standard God gets for how things ought to be, the home ought to include a, a, a husband and a wife, a mother and a father, to love and nurture and care for those children. And so many of the problems in society are because that's not the case. J.C. Ryle comments, nations are nothing but a collection of families. The good order of the family depends entirely upon keeping the high standards of the marriage tie. And so we ought to be thankful that the great head of the church had a definite opinion about marriage and family. This is very important that we get this right. Not only to obey and follow Jesus and give Him glory, but for the good of society. And so Jesus comes loving, healing. What He's saying to us, He says in love, in compassion, in mercy, in care. He loves you. He cares for you. And He's going to say some things that might be hard to hear. Point number two. The Pharisees test Jesus by asking Him about divorce. The Pharisees test Jesus by asking Him about divorce. Look at verse 3. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so we're told here the Pharisees test. Remember the Pharisees are part of the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day. They are the ones who are supposed to know God's Word and live by God's Word faithfully. They're supposed to be the teachers of God's Word. But they are shown over and over again in the Gospels to pervert God's Word, to, 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 to fail to live it out to fail to be doers of the Word. And they lead God's people astray. Jesus calls them hypocrites. He calls them brood of vipers. He calls them blind guides. He calls them lovers of money. He even pronounces woes or curses upon them in Matthew 23. And they are acting like Satan here, testing God. The same word used for, for they came to test Him is the same word used of Satan coming to tempt Jesus, remember, in Matthew chapter 4. And the Bible says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But here they are, testing the God-man, Jesus. They're, they're not here wondering about how to be holy in their marriages. They're not here wondering about how do we follow God? How do we obey God? How do we love God? How do we, how do we follow Him in marriage? That's not their motive. 
D.A. Carson comments, their test here was probably delivered in the hope that Jesus would say something to damage his reputation with the people or even seem to contradict Moses. Perhaps, too, they hoped that Jesus would say something that would entangle him in the Herod Herodias affair so that he might meet John the Baptist's fate. So they're trying to get Jesus in trouble. Oh, Jesus says this, but Moses said this. Oh, we shouldn't trust Jesus. He's contradicting Moses. Y'all don't even know. He came to fulfill Moses. He gave Moses his words. Before Moses, he is. Or they trying to have him say something and get Herod to kill him like Herod killed John the Baptist. When John the Baptist called out Herod about his unfaithful marriage, unrighteous union. We must ask Jesus questions for the right reasons. We must ask Jesus questions for the right reasons because we want to know Him. We, we want to live like Him. We want to be holy like Him. Not questions to see how far we can go before it's sin. You know, you hear young people sometimes ask that when they're courting or dating, how much can we do together physically before it's sin? Is that really the right question? How can I know Christ more? How can I follow Christ more faithfully? Those are the kinds of questions we want to ask. Sadly, divorce was very common in Jesus' day that these Pharisees come asking this question, is it lawful for one to divorce one's wife for any cause? And, and divorce was very common in Jesus' day. There were different schools of thought in Jesus' day about how permissible divorce was. The, the Rabbi Shammai was a more strict teaching uh, of when divorce was allowable. Uh, the Rabbi Hillel taught a more relaxed view. Many Jewish leaders allowed divorce for the most ridiculous reasons. Two that get mentioned in almost every sermon and commentary is that Hillel-type uh, looseness would allow a man to divorce his wife if she didn't cook his breakfast correctly. Or if he found a woman he liked better, one who was more beautiful, well, then he could just divorce her, his wife and go with the one he liked better. And so divorce was... Was, was rampant in, in Jesus' day, and, and here they come asking, can we divorce our wife for any reason? D.A. Carson comments on the historic writer Josephus, the historian. Josephus, for instance, himself a divorcee, was a Pharisee, and in his view, divorce was permitted for any cause whatsoever. This is very similar to our day in America. Divorce is also out of control here, where we now have no-fault divorce, Many churches don't preach or teach on this. And even if they do preach or teach on it, they don't actually hold their members accountable to live up to Christ's standards when they begin to veer off Christ's standards. But we today are worse than those in Jesus' day. Why is that? We're worse than they are. Because we have Jesus. We have His death and resurrection. We have His teachings. And yet we rebel against what he says. Sinful divorce can be a particularly grievous sin. Sinful divorce can be a particularly grievous sin. It often happens over weeks and months of people planning and working with lawyers and in a thought out and deliberate way planning to disobey God in a willful refusal to submit to God's Word and do what He commands. 
And when we sin against God in that way over weeks and months and years, thinking out, planning it, knowing we're doing wrong, but going in it anyway, that makes the sin more grievous. Friend, if you're here this morning, I wonder if you realize that you are a sinner. That you have sinned against God. It may not be by the sin of divorce, but you've been unfaithful to God. Because the Bible says all of us have. God's love never changes. God is always faithful, but we are not. We're so fickle. We're so turned to the left and the right by feelings. And we've all sinned against Him. We, we've not been faithful like He has. We've turned aside and gone our own way. We've broken His commandments. We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen. We've looked with lust. We've committed adultery in our hearts. We've lost our temper and been angry and killed people in our hearts. We've, we've judged people. We, we've not loved people as we love ourselves. Imagine how your heart will be filled with joy if you love people the way you love yourself. Do you realize what a high standard that is to love your neighbor as you love yourself? Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that you're a woman in this congregation and you've been married for 15 years and you, the one thing you've longed for so much is to have a child. And for 15 years trying, you, you've been barren. You haven't had any children. And that's, just, that, that's the biggest thing in your life that, that would tempt you to curse God and die is that He's not given you a child and you so desperately long for a child. And you're here this morning and you hear the announcement, Heidi Myrick's pregnant. Isaac is a father. To love your neighbor as yourself is to be just as happy for her as if you'd gotten pregnant yourself. That's the standard. That is an amazing standard. To be just as happy as if you got pregnant yourself. What? Unbelievable! I've been praying for this 15 years and she got pregnant and I'm happy. I'm as happy for her as for myself. That's loving her as you love yourself. I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. You love people that way? You ever love one person that way? We need Jesus. We don't know how much we need. We say, oh yeah, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. We don't even know how sinful we are. We are so much more sinful than we could ever conceive. All of us. And yet, as, as Keller often says, we're more loved, more loved and accepted and cared for than we ever dare believe. That's the gospel. We're sinners. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't rejoice in each other's victories as if they were our own victories. We don't weep. We don't weep with those who weep as if they were our own sadnesses. We need a Savior. And we have one. God loves sinners. Praise God. He loves sinners. And He sent His Son Jesus into the world, the God-man, who did love His neighbor as Himself. 
who, who saw all his neighbors going to hell. And so he went to hell in their place so that they wouldn't go to hell. He loved his neighbor as himself and he died on that cross and took God's curse and rose on the third day so that all who repent and believe in him shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news of the gospel. Friend, have you believed in Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? I invite you today, right now, if you've not trusted Christ, to believe in Him. Because the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You shall be forgiven. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't come to church enough, read your Bible enough, do enough good things to earn His love. You can simply receive it by faith alone in Christ alone. Would you do that today? Would you trust Him? I'll be here afterwards. There are other people who would love to speak with you. If you need to talk to somebody and pray about your soul, we want you to leave here knowing Christ and trusting Him. And when we know Christ, we, we want to repent of sin. Uh, we, we want to repent of sin, including the, the sin of divorce. I mean, that's sort of another hard thing when we have people come to us for, for instance, church membership, but there's a divorce in their past. Well, what, is, what does repentance look like? It's not just saying, I'm sorry that happened. I'd do it again differently. But, but if, if, if that person they're divorced from is still unmarried, <laughs> I mean, we have to talk about reconciliation because repentance looks like reconciliation in some cases. And we have to take those on a case-by-case basis. But it could look like going back, if possible, to your spouse and renewing the covenant of marriage and getting married again to the person you divorced if you did so sinfully. And there's a lot to talk about there, which we're going to talk about in the next few sermons. And so stay tuned. Keep coming back. But I'm not going to talk about those situations now. We're just going to focus on marriage in this first sermon. Point number three. So the Pharisees ask and test Jesus about divorce. Point number three, Jesus teaches that they are only two genders. <laughs> I sort of, again, uh, stretch this out because we need to hear this in our culture today. Jesus teaches that there are only two genders. Look at verses 4 and 5. Matthew 19, 4 and 5. He answered, Have you not read... I mean, just, just hear that. <laughs> this is sort of insulting. I mean, these are the teachers of the law. These are the, supposed to be the experts. These are the, supposed to be the ones who know the law, memorize the law, teach the law uh, in detail, in depth, the experts of the law. Have you not read? And in, in the first book of the Bible, <laughs> have you not read? Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? Jesus here is, is taking them back to Genesis, the very beginning, the first book in the Bible, and He's quoting Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. God made only two genders. 
And, 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 and I'm emphasizing this because our world and culture has gone bonkers on this. And you need to know what you believe. There, there's going to be a falling away. There's already a great falling away of people in churches not living up to God's standard concerning sexuality and homosexuality and this transgender movement. And so you need to know as believers what God says and be willing to lose your job over it. Because we don't fly rainbow flags and, and we don't call people and lie to them about their personal pronouns or fake names. We don't lie to people. That's evil. It's evil to lie to people about who they are. It's wicked. And, and we don't do that and, and we have to be willing to follow Jesus and suffer the consequences. And we'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. And that's the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to follow Jesus and obey Jesus. Hey, I love you. I, 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 I wish I, I, I could accommodate you in this, in a sense, because I love you as a friend, but I can't do that. I can't do that. There are, there's, a, there's a father, Father's Day, Father. There's a father in Canada who went to jail because he would not call his daughter by her preferred pronouns. And in Canada, that's a child abuse. That's the, the equivalent of taking a baseball bat and hitting your daughter if you won't call her by her preferred pronoun. So he went to jail for that. Well, we, we have to be willing to go to jail if we're going to follow Jesus. Because we want to love our daughters and love our sons. And we don't lie to them about who they are. That is wicked and unloving no matter how much your daughter cries. And, and there are all kinds of outrageous claims on this. It's better to have a, an alive child than a dead child putting, if you don't call them by that name, then you're going to cause them to commit suicide. No. No. No, we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus in love and call them who they are. There's a wonderful testimony online about a woman who... Uh, had this problem of gender dysphoria and, and she had these surgeries uh, to remove her, her breast and lived as a man, but her family kept faithfully loving her and calling her her female name and she and her. And God used their love and witness to finally bring her out of that and now she's detransitioned and she's married to a man and living as a woman as God created her because God made two genders, male and female, He created them. And to rebel against that is to rebel against God. That's what Jesus says. Genesis 2, 20-25. Genesis 2, 20-25, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, beloved, God, God is clear. Jesus is clear. God created two genders, male and female. Point number four. Jesus teaches that the words of Moses in Genesis are the words of God. This is a small point, but I just want you to see this. Jesus teaches that the words of Moses in Genesis are the words of God. Look at verses 4 and 6 again. He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and that they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now the He who created them from the beginning in Matthew 19.4 is God, right? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That He is God. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 19.5 that the same God, He said, He who created them from the beginning said in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see that? Moses wrote that. It doesn't say, and God declared. It says, it's what Moses wrote. But the way Jesus talks about it, He says God said that. God said Genesis. God said Exodus. God said Leviticus. God said Numbers and Deuteronomy. God said the whole Bible. This book is breathed out by God. That's the Jesus view of the Bible. That every word here is God's word. Authoritative. That we love and submit to. Genesis 2.24, which Moses wrote. What Moses wrote, God said. Moses was inspired by God to write God's Word in Genesis. That's what Jesus believes about the Bible. I hope you see that. We want to take Jesus' view of the Bible. If, if we have any view less than Jesus, we wrong. <laughs> Point five. Jesus teaches that marriage is primary, personal, and permanent. And this is my last point, a little longer. Jesus teaches that marriage is primary, personal, and permanent. Look at verses 4 through 6. He answered, this is his answer to the Pharisees. When they ask him, can we divorce for any reason? This is the first part of his answer, right? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus teaches that marriage is the primary of first importance relationship of all relationships on earth between human beings. Jesus teaches that marriage is the primary of first importance relationship, of all relationships on earth between human beings. How, where do I get that? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And so the marriage relationship is more important than your relationship with your mom and dad. Some people don't get that. They don't get the leave and cleave thing. 
But that's what Jesus says. We're going to go with Jesus. Marriage becomes the primary relationship. More important than your mom and your dad, the marriage relationship is. You leave and cleave. More important than the parent-child relationship. I, I've, I've been warned by some people, you know, as a single man, praying for a wife, oh, don't marry a woman who has children. Don't do that. I've been warned by people. I don't, I don't buy that. I don't take that advice. I think that's wrong advice. I think it's dead wrong advice. If you understand, but the reason they say that is because they're always going to love their children more than they love you. They're always going to side with their children. If you marry a woman who has children, they're always going to side with their children and love their children and take their children's side more than they'll take your side. Well, then they don't understand Jesus if they do that. That's wrong. That's wrong to do that. So we got to work that out, right? we got to work out what Jesus says here. No, you leave and cleave. Marriage, more important than your children, more important than your parents, marriage is the primary relationship. Kids going to grow up and move out, and then you left with each other. Parents going to go be with Jesus, and you left with each other. Marriage is the primary relationship on earth. And you need to treat it that way, spouses. With your time, with your finances, with your emotions, it's got to be primary. You have to guard that. More important than siblings. More important than friends. More important than work colleagues. Marriage, according to Jesus Christ, is the primary of first importance relationship of all relationships on earth between human beings. And I just want to ring this side note bell. Jesus is the most important. Your relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship. More important than marriage. You're not going to have a good marriage unless Jesus is, is, is of first importance in your life. Luke 14, 26. Y'all know I love to quote this one. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You hate your wife compared to Jesus? Father's Day. Children, you hate your daddy compared to Jesus? That's what he's saying. I look forward to someday possibly being married because I'm going to tell my wife, honey, I hate you compared to Jesus. You think I'm joking? Honey, I hate you compared to Jesus. And I want her to say the same thing to me because Jesus got to be first. And, and what Jesus is saying there, to truly love our spouses, the love we have for Jesus must be so big, so grand, so tall, that in comparison, every other deep love in your life is, is like hatred. Jesus first. By far. By far. Jesus first. Garrett Kell writes in a book on purity, sexual pleasure will never ultimately satisfy you. A wonderful spouse will never fulfill you. Neither sex nor spouse can do what only God can. You can have the best spouse on the planet and enjoy the most fulfilling sex life imaginable, yet this fact remains, if your heart is not satisfied in God, it will wonder to find satisfaction elsewhere. Spouses can be wonderful helpers, but they are sorry saviors. Jesus alone can satisfy something as complex as the human soul. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's put Jesus first. And, and here Jesus is telling us in the human realm, the first and primary relationship is marriage. And so Jesus teaches that marriage is primary. Jesus also teaches that marriage is the most personal relationship that you will ever be in. Jesus teaches that marriage is the most personal relationship you will ever be in. It is a one flesh union. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. And they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What does it mean to become one flesh? I have several answers. Number one, they become one in body. They become one in body. And again, this is something that, that, that nature shows us. That nature shows us. God has made the male and the female to fit together. To fit together in that, that, that sexual union. He's made the parts to fit together. One flesh union. 1 Corinthians 6, 15-20. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And where does Paul go to ground that truth? For as it is written, he's just like Jesus. He's going back to the written Word of God. Just like Jesus went back to the written Word of God in Genesis. So Paul, the inspired apostle, goes back to the written Word as well. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So God's saying that if you have sex with a prostitute, you become one flesh with her in that sense. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. To become one flesh in marriage is to become one in, in body like this. And uh, uh, this same book I was reading uh, uh, by Garrett Kale, he talked about God has created sex to be like a magnet. Like a magnet, like magnets attract each other. And so when you have sex with someone, there's, there's almost this, this kind of mingling of souls that God created, that, that there's an attraction to one another, and it grows and deepens as you, you consummate that sexual act, and God created it that way. That you become one. Marriage is both covenant promise and sexual consummation, and it's the only relationship in which a man and a woman can have and enjoy this sexual relationship. If you, if you are married, you get to enjoy this. I mean, read the book of Song of Solomon. God created a sexual relationship for our joy and to be enjoyed and delight in one another's bodies. And, and Song of Solomon gets real specific about body parts that we're to delight in. And so it's, it's not something that Christians need to be prudish about or uh, but God made it to enjoy only though in that covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. If, if you've been divorced, you, you can't 
have sexual relations with the spouse you divorced from unless you get remarried. That would be sexual immorality. Marriage is the only relationship in which a man and a woman can have and enjoy this sexual relationship of becoming one body. And so that's what it means to become one flesh. Number two, it means they become one in commitment. They, they become one in commitment. And this is the heart of marriage. They are committed to one another. They're committed to one another to stay married no matter what, to display the absolute permanence and unchanging nature of Christ's love for the church. This is the central thing about marriage. All those things that, that, that are great that the Westminster Confession mentioned, you, you can lose a lot of that stuff. She might not be the best helper. Her personality might change. She might not be able to bear children. You might not be able to have sexual intercourse when you get older. But what remains? What remains? You ain't never getting rid of me. That's what remains. Honey, we're in this. Thick and thin, no matter what. Why? Because Jesus never left his bride. And the bride never leaves Jesus. And we're a picture of that to the world. Covenant commitment. Covenant promise. That's the main thing about marriage. This commitment to love one another and stay with one another and help one another until death do us part. You become one in this commitment. You love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8 Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You ought to know that before you tell somebody you love them. Because usually, a lot, a lot, a lot of people, when they say, I love you, they mean, I lust you. <laughs> I lust you. I, lo I like all the things you do for me. You make me feel good. I like seeing you with my eyes. I like the way you make me feel. I, 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 I like what you bring to the table. I like how you cook. I like how you do all this for me. It's all about me. That's what a lot of people mean when they say, I love you. They don't understand God's love. What the Bible says about love. Be careful before you tell somebody you love them. Love never ends. Love never ends. And so marriage is becoming one body, but it's also this covenant commitment. When we have weddings here, we, we, we have the couples take covenant vows. The last wedding I did was Chris and Dee here today. And I'm going to quote from that ceremony. Uh, I, I, I said this, and then Chris repeated after me. I, Chris, take you, Dee, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold. Yes, Input all of Song of Solomon. I get to have her and hold her. Amen. From this day forward, from this day forward, for better, for worse, for better, for worse, no matter what happens. B.B. Warfield's wife got struck by lightning on their honeymoon and was an invalid for the rest of her life, and he stayed with her and, and was faithful to her and hardly could ever leave home because he took care of her. See, that's the thing about marriage. You, you don't know what you're going to get because we all change. <laughs> and circumstances change and things change and people change. And sometimes people use that as an excuse. Well, she's changed and I've changed and we've just gone apart. Well, God says stay together. 
no matter what, no matter how you change, to be a picture of that covenant love of Christ for the church. For better, for worse. I heard one ceremony, they changed those words for better, for better. And they changed everything for richer, for richer. For health and healthier. That's rubbish. That's scubalon. Do you see why that's scubalon? That's the, let me translate for you, that's the Greek word that Paul uses in Philippians 3 for dung, cow manure. That's scubalon to say that because basically you're saying, as long as it gets better, I'm going to stay faithful. As long as she never gets sick, I'm going to stay faithful. No. That's that prosperity preacher mess infiltrating marriage vows. No, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part according to God's holy ordinance and thereto I pledge you myself. That's the promise that Chris made to Dee that Dee made to Chris. It's a commitment. That's what it means to become one. You're one in this rock-solid commitment to show forth Christ in the church and Christ never leaves His bride and His bride never leaves Him. They become one in mission. One in mission. I had a friend who proposed to his, his fiancée with Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. That's a great way to propose. We're one in mission. We're going to magnify the Lord. Our goal, our main priority in marriage is not to make each other more comfortable in this world, but to magnify God in this world together. To help one another magnify the Lord, follow the Lord, serve the Lord. We had this, this purpose to pursue Christ, to love Christ, to live for Christ, and exalt His name together. We become one in this mission. And we figure out that we can do this better together than apart. They're to help one another pursue Christ, to grow in Christ, help one another fight sin, to help one another store up treasures in heaven, to help one another get prepared for heaven, to raise godly children together, to carry out the great commission together. And the wife is called to follow her husband and help her husband to accomplish what God has called him to do, and they do this together. And so they become one in mission. They become one as Christ and the church became one, become one. They become one as Christ and the church become one. Look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Long passage on marriage, but, but this is what it means to become one, to live Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 out before a watching world. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so, husbands and wives become one in, again, showing forth that picture of Christ 
and the church. One writer writes that emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, financially, and in every other way, the couple is to become one. And Jesus teaches not only that marriage is primary and personal, but also that it's permanent. Jesus teaches that marriage is God permanently joining a man and a woman and making them one. Look at verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God does this. This is an act of God. When, when God, when you get married, God is doing it. If you need to, if you wonder whether you married the right woman, as one has said, look and see what the marriage certificate says and the name on the certificate, that's the right woman. God does this. This is God's act. This is not just the pastor saying some words. This is not just you saying some words. This is God joining is what Jesus in the Bible says. One pastor uh, says that when, he says, when I do a wedding, I begin at the front end, the beginning of the ceremony. We have gathered to solemnize, which means to seriously and formally celebrate an act that God is about to perform in the next 30 minutes. Therefore, let us now invoke His presence. God's going to do this. What God is joined together, Jesus said. What God is joined together, what God is joined together. And since God does it, no person should separate what God has joined. You see the logic there? Since God does it, no person should separate what God has joined. And, and I, I did have a person say to me, so just so this is clear, uh, Jesus says what, um, uh, what, 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 what God has joined, let no man separate. And the lady said, well, it didn't say what, what no woman is separated, and I'm the woman, I'm going to separate us. That's bad exegesis. That's bad. No, when Jesus says no man, He means no human being, male or female or any, any such thing. What God has joined, let no one and nothing separate that. Because God is joined. And, and since God does it, God does the joining, no person should separate what God has joined. Malachi 2, 13-16 speaks of this. Malachi, prophet Malachi, Old Testament, 2, 13 through 16. Another thing you do, he's sort of calling out the, 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 these covenant people for their sin against him. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because we, he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And so they're, they're, they're weeping before the Lord. They're offering sacrifices, in a sense, coming to church, paying tithes and offerings, doing what we normally do in worship of God. But, 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 but God doesn't hear them. God doesn't receive this, the, the, these offerings. Why? You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. We should hear that this morning. In, in a sermon on marriage, we should hear 
that our God and Lord, whom we love with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and want to follow and obey, says, I hate divorce. Now, I don't believe all divorce is sinful. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. I believe that the Bible gives two exceptions in which it is uh, 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 biblically permissible but not necessary to divorce, namely sexual immorality and abandonment. But those are the only two grounds. We'll talk about that. But in general, God's people don't divorce. God's people don't use the word. God's people pursue what Christ says in our passage. As John Piper has said to us already this morning, the deepest and highest meaning of marriage, the flesh and blood display in the world of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church. And beloved, I, I love to rehearse this at weddings that that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. So Adam and Eve, at the very beginning, God marries them. And then at the end of all things, at the end of time, the marriage supper of the Lamb between Christ and the church. And we see throughout the Bible this theme of, of marriage between God and His people. And, and so when, when God uh, calls Israel to be His people in Jeremiah 31, He talks about the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. And then in, in Hosea, to be this, this, this powerful picture of how God loves His people, God actually calls the prophet Hosea to go marry an unfaithful prostitute who is going to sin against Him and commit adultery against Him and have children by other men. Uh, 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 and God says, love her anyway, because this is how you, Israel, have sinned against me and been unfaithful, and yet I love you still. Ah, that's some prodigal love. That's some prodigal love right there. That's some lavish love that God loves us even in our unfaithfulness. Hosea 1-2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. But then what did we hear Brother Rob read in Hosea 2? Pointing to the new covenant. Hosea 2, 19-20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. You see, though Israel is unfaithful, God was and is faithful and sends Jesus to come. And Jesus is called what? The bridegroom. The bridegroom. He is the great heavenly bridegroom. And, and Paul writes to the Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 too, I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so we, the church, are the bride of, of Christ and He's coming back for us. And, and there will be a great consummation where we see Him as He is and there's no more sin and no more death and no more pain and no more tears. And we, 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 we embrace our great bridegroom Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 7-9. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
One pastor described all of life this way. The end goal of creation of God was to provide a spouse for His Son, Jesus Christ, that might enjoy Him and own Him. He might pour forth His love. And the end of all things in providence are to make way for the exceeding expressions of Christ's love to His spouse and for her exceeding close and intimate union with and high and glorious enjoyment of Him and to bring this to pass. And therefore the last thing and the issue of all things is the marriage of the Lamb. And the wedding day is the last day, the day of judgment. Or rather, that will be the beginning of it. The wedding feast is eternal. And the love and joys, the songs, entertainments, and glories of the wedding never will be ended. It will be an everlasting wedding day. And beloved, for us to enjoy all of this, Jesus had to endure the great divorce. For us to enjoy this mercy, Jesus had to endure the greatest divorce on that cross. He had to go to that cross and bear the wrath and curse of God, His Father, and and endure this most horrible separation as He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? He bore God's curse for us. He bore God's hell for us. He died. And on the third day, He rose from the dead so that all who believe in Him are transformed and changed and take marriage seriously and seek to obey Christ in what He tells us about marriage in its permanence and in its personal nature and in its primary nature. Jesus confronts false teachers, the Pharisees, by pointing them back to God's Word in Genesis, which shows that divorce is against God's righteous command because marriage is God permanently joining one man and one woman in a one-flesh union that should never be separated. Christ is the groom who never leaves, but to His bride forever cleaves. And all who trust Him, He receives. We long for love that will not end. Therefore our God, His Son, would send. To win a bride, He did descend, yet she against Him did offend. But He still loved her hate suspend. Before her, He would condescend. And on that cross, His life would end. Then from the grave, He did ascend. If you'll trust On Him depend. He'll save you now and be your friend. He'll give you love that will not end. But forevermore extend. Forever at His side you'll spend. He gives you joy that will transcend His love you cannot comprehend. O love that will not let me go. Deep from His heart great mercies flow. For through His love and grace we grow when all on Him our hopes we throw. He makes our sin as white as snow. On us great favor He'll bestow. If we're humble, meek, and low, He saves us from the hell below. All because our God we know, He'll make our face shine with a glow. It's God who joins. Oh, this is sweet. He loves you so and won't mistreat. If a spouse you hope to meet, the wait for you is long with heat, you can be sure God makes replete. Your deepest needs He'll more than meet. So bow to Him. Trust at His feet. He satisfies more than the sheet.
And then someday, on that gold street, you'll know in Him you are complete. Christ is God who wrote the law. So Moses bows to Him in all. Hardness of heart we fight and claw. This kills marriage. Lovers withdraw. You walk away. It's the last straw. But in it all, there's a great flaw. There's no submission. Christ is all. What Jesus said will drop your jaw. No separation is His law. So bow to Him and you won't fall. From your spouse you won't withdraw. What God is joined, let no man break. The two are one our God did make. With joy our Christ in love did take a bride to keep and not forsake. And since all marriage in His wake points to this truth, make no mistake, we stay together for His sake. Don't listen to the wicked snake. Embrace the marriage hard with ache and fight to stay. May love awake to selfish sin, die and forsake. Serve the other, don't give and take, and do this all for His name's sake. For His glory is what's at stake. But you, He never will forsake. If you failed in this high call, there is a Savior. Christ is all. He died to save you from your fall and heal you from the bitter gall. So in His name, for mercy call. He'll take your sins, both big and small, and cast them down, never recall. He'll give new life, make you stand tall. Christ Jesus hates the sin divorce, but faithful marriage He'll endorse. One man, one woman in covenant force become one flesh in intercourse. What marriage is, He is the source. For He's the groom who'd reinforce His love for us without remorse. By death He faced the great divorce. Then rose so life would take its course. He'll never leave His bride, no force could ever separate in force. For His love like great war horse will overwhelm with power source. For He's our all and never coarse. So trust your groom, His word endorse. For He alone can stop divorce. Father, we pray that we would hear Christ's words today. Lord, that we would take our Lord seriously. That we would take You seriously. That we would take Your words seriously. Father, we pray that we would have a better understanding of marriage, what its purposes are, and that mainly, fundamentally, primarily, it is about displaying that never-ending, never-failing covenant love between Christ and the church. Father, we pray that our marriages at Alney Baptist Church would display that never-ending, never-failing covenant love between Christ and the church. Father, we pray that fathers would take the lead on that. That they would lead their homes, their wives, their children, their marriages in that commitment of never ending, never failing covenant love between Christ and the church. We pray that You would strengthen the marriages in our church. Those that are struggling, we pray that they would grow Father, we pray for marriages where there's a spouse that does not believe the gospel. We pray that You would save those spouses. We pray that You would redeem them, that You would grant them repentance and faith, that You would save their souls, that You would give the other spouses in those relationships wisdom and strength to bear 
even when it's hard. We pray for wisdom and guidance. We pray for love and grace and mercy. Father, we pray for those who have experienced divorce and this topic is particularly painful for them. We pray that they would know Your grace and love and mercy, know that You love them, know that there's forgiveness. Grant repentance where repentance is needed. We pray for grace and salvation and healing. Father, for those who are single and have longed to be married, maybe even for decades, Lord, we pray that You remind us of the most godly, faithful human being who ever lived who was not married, Jesus Christ. And that we would look to Him as our all in all. And that we would know, and those who are in hard marriages would know, and even those who are in good marriages would know that someday all human marriage will fade away. And we will all be married to the only one spouse who can satisfy our soul. Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In His name we pray. Amen.